1: Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. Over the course of the 16th century and 17th century, works of botany underwent a radical change in the English book trade. A genre that was once produced in smaller, cheaper formats became lavishly produced authoritative folios. But as a new book from Cambridge University Press, Early Modern Herbals and the Book Trade English Stationers, and the Commodification of Botany shows, the relationships between making, producing, and consuming of botanical and medical knowledge was much more fluid. Today, I'm discussing this exciting new book with the author, Sarah Neville. Sarah Neville is Associate Professor of English and Creative Director of Lord Denny's Players at Ohio State University. Sarah serves as an assistant editor of the New Oxford Shakespeare and an associate coordinating editor of the Digital Renaissance Editions. Sarah is also the producer, director, and writer of the documentary Looking for Hamlet 1603. I am excited to welcome Sarah Neville to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Let's start with broad definitions. What was an early modern herbal? Who might purchase these artifacts? And what were they used for?
0: So simply put, herbals are books that list, organize, and describe plants as well as their virtues. Often their medical virtues, but not always. Sometimes their virtues, these plants can be used for weaving, for dyeing, that sort of thing. Um, But herbals are a genre that predates even the codex form or the form of the modern book, Um, and they also predate even the English language. So there's something that is a a genre that is very, very old. Um, So we see herbals in classical scrolls, and we can see from this that the the interest in plants was basically perennial, to put it, to to make a pun. So people relied on herbals to teach them how to recognize plants in a landscape um, for information, say, about where to look for a type of reed that could be used for a watertight basket. Um, But they also use them for the reverse effect. So, hey, I found this reed. What can I possibly use it for? So herbals are books that readers used to help them solve real-world problems they're texts that have what we might think of as a high use value. Um, but as printing enabled multiple copies of a text to be issued uh, through impression, what we book historians can begin to see is that herbals also started to have an exchange value as a very specific type of commodity. And that's what my book is is about. Um, my book talks about the ways that herbals um, exchange value as things to be sold in a print marketplace uh, influenced how and why they were written.
1: Early modern herbals in the book trade is particularly in, interested in showing how what we would call publishers, uh, the entrepreneurial members of the book trade who decide what gets printed, how it gets formatted, who it gets marketed to, um, shaped the books that entered the marketplace as much as authors or readers. What was the role of publishers?
0: So I like to talk about publishers as the, uh, the Aristotelian prime movers of the book trade. So we often talk about authors as if they're the prime movers. They come up with the idea for a book and then they write it and then a publisher comes in after the fact. Um, but that's not entirely correct, particularly not in the production of books of natural history in Renaissance England or indeed Renaissance um, Europe. Um, And so um, what I'm more interested in is showing the broader context in which works of natural history were produced in the Renaissance. And what that means um, is that I'm, I'm interested in these figures who used their money, their capital to set in motion the processes that enabled books to be made. And the reason that this matters is that um, quite often, particularly as herbals increased in size and scope, um, getting to be these large and lavishly illustrated things that we tend to think of, um, they were almost always commissioned by or written in partnership with publishers who were able and willing to fund them. Um, these herbals were books that these publishers wanted to sell, and so they sought an author um, who could help create one for them. So though we now talk about uh, a book like John Gerard's 1597 Herbals or General History of Plants, which is this massive and beautiful uh, book of about 1,400 pages, um, we tend to talk about that as if Gerard was the originator of that text, Um the evidence shows that, in fact, that book came about because it was a publisher-led project um, by the the publisher of that book, uh, Stationer John Norton, uh, who saw in the 1590s that there hadn't been an English herbal produced by an Englishman in 40 years, um, and that since William Turner's in the 1550s, and uh, he commissioned Girard to fill in the gap in that publication uh, history. And that actually had been occurring even earlier than that. 70 years earlier, a publisher named Richard Banks also realized that a small anonymous manuscript herbal that had made many, many copies was regularly available for sale in medieval scriptoria. Um, That hadn't made it to print yet. And he figured, oh, there must be a there there must be a market for this. I'm going to put this into into my press. And and he was correct. That became one of the most popular and frequently printed books of the entire 16th century. Um, so in short, the publishers are the figures who guessed at what early modern readers might want to read, and they made speculative investments um, to decide what would make it to print.
1: The first. Chapter takes up one such relationship, uh, a, a more indirect relationship: the contentious um, battle in words between author Leonard Fuchs and a publisher of a rival herbal, Christian Egelnoff. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Their pr- confrontation in print included accurate accusations of plagiarism, shoddy scholarship, and name calling. Eganolf uh, once said that Fuchs would be exposed as a, quote, completely skinned, mangy, quite hairless little fox. Um, what do these dynamics between authors and publishers reveal about the book trade around herbals?
0: Yeah, I love the story of uh, I, I call him Fuchs, but I, I've been told that I in order to pronounce this properly, it's something closer to Fuchs which is fun to say um, for an English speaker. Um, I, I love the 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 fighting, the infighting that tends that that my research on this book um, uncovered because it seems like uh, then as now, academic tempers tended to flare around the smallest of minutia in in details of the descriptions about plants, um, and part of the way that these debates have been characterized is you have these scientists who are debating for the truth. Uh, the truth about how to describe the relationship between different species of plants and and how they can and should grow and so on. And that's all very true. But what is also occurring is a performance of authority that is playing out in this Republic of uh, Letters. And the thing about the Republic of Letters in print is that the authors cannot control what it is that makes it to print because they themselves don't print their books. Publishers print their books or pay money to have their books printed um, for them. So though we tend to talk about early modern natural history books as if they emerge from their authors uh, fully formed, uh, what my workers as scholars to pause and consider is that the physical objects known as books are actually artisanal products made by craftsmen and craftswomen. Who did what they did because they needed to sell the product the products of their labor so authors couldn't succeed unless they got their work printed and if they wanted to be recognized as authorities or public intellectuals they had to convince a publisher that their work was worthwhile and One of the great ironies of having to sell my own work to an academic press is that I had to demonstrate why other works on the subject were insufficient. Or inferior. So I was engaging in the same kind of processes that some of my subjects were, as they would suggest. This person's work is is unacceptable, and look, they're even swiping from themselves. They are printing the same book that they printed two years ago under a different title. For example, this is a thing that they regularly accused each other of. but because um, authors had to convince publishers that the, their work was worthwhile, authors were often ambivalent or even resentful of, about having to be in such a subservient position to publishers who were merely an, in it for uh, economic gain. And you can see this in authors like Fuchs and Brinfels. Um, whose writings regularly complain about their inability to get their book published the way they really want it to be um, with all of the illustrations that they want, Um, or the publisher would not publish the follow-up book, um, or the publisher insisted on uh, supplying illustrations that were inaccurate because they wanted to have an additional illustration on the page and so on. So what I I work to do in the book is distinguish between herbals as the texts of authors and herbals as books, which are the products of publishers and printers, to see how the authoritative and intellectual pretensions of herbals were sometimes at odds with their economic or commercial value. There's two separate storylines that are at play in these books. And I'm trying to tease out who's responsible, which agent is responsible for which kind of part um, of of the herbal text or the herbal book.
1: You also examine the role played by the Stationers Company of London in the transformation of herbals. Uh, What was the role of the Stationers Company in early modern uh, English publishing of these herbals? And how did it specifically afford economic insurance in democratizing ways?
0: It's a big question. So uh, the stationers are the guild in London that manage the technology of printing and the sale of printed books. And the stationers have a long history in bookmaking and bookbinding um, from even before the emergence of print. Uh, But it was the incorporation of the company in 1557, uh, during the, the last year of Mary I, that solidified their dominance over the book trade. And before that, uh, freemen of any London company, citizens of London could print or sell books regardless of their company affiliation. But once the stationers were incorporated, it cinched their right to manage all elements of the trade in printed books. And they, they got that right in exchange for ensuring that no heretical or seditious material made it into print. And this is why obviously it's, it's of Mary's interest to make sure that nothing um, undesirable made it into print. And so she gave the stationers control over the technology and the trade in exchange for effectively uh, censoring or having the potential to censor any of that material. And the main way that the stationers did this was by limiting book printing and publishing to members of their own company. So um, no one outside the trade any longer could print books. You had to be a member of the company and and pay your dues to the company. And if a stationer wanted to print an edition of a book, um, they first would have to have the work examined by a civic or religious authority, like a bishop, um, to make sure it was free of anything seditious. But then they had to check with the company to ensure that their proposed addition would not affect anyone else's existing rights to profit from a text that they already owned. And so this functions kind of like an early form of copyright that allowed stationers to speculate on the future earnings potential of a given text or, or given literary or, or non-literary work regardless of if they had an actual intention of publishing it. So a stationer would get permission to publish a book before the book was actually printed. And we now talk about this um, in in one of the stationer's registries. Um, Shorthand is the stationer's register. If it was entered into the stationer's register, we get a sense of that text existing. An author has produced something that someone wants to, uh, to print. And so it's the precursor to what we um, might now understand as optioning in a way, um, the optioning the rights to a film, whether or not that film actually gets made. Prior to this point, prior to 1557, a small handful of individual publishers had uh, crown granted patents that could protect whatever they printed for a limited period of time from from about three to seven years. But after that time elapses, a text would just go back into the public domain. So the crown said, okay, you've got an X number of years. You print something. You have the right to earn your money back and be the exclusive producer of that text, of that edition. But once that time elapses, anybody can print this object, uh, print this book again. But, so, the new system of registry after fifteen fifty seven effectively opened up copyright to anyone who was a member of the company, not just those who had access to the crown for one of those patents. So any stationer um thinking about stationers as sort of the middle class London citizen figure can now take part in this speculative enterprise. And instead of three to seven years of protection, books that were registered were owned by the publishers in perpetuity. Um, And the the future earnings of those books were bought and sold amongst the stationers. We have many records about this um, that shows us the way that the potential future publication of a book um, or a book's later editions could become thought of as economic commodities. So there's a real connection between the works that authors make and the way that thing could be of value to sell uh, for a f- single flat fee to a stationer who then can make future earnings off of it. Um, and what you start to see, especially in the later half of the 16th century in London, is that some stationers started to move away from the printing process um, simply to speculate in futurity to speculate in book popularity Um, and those publishers very quickly became powerful economic agents who are effectively were the prime movers of the the books that I'm studying the herbals that I'm studying
1: I I also thought this anecdote about William Turner's herbal uh, it, it ends up on a banned books list basically because of the associations of the
0: author right yeah, one of Turner's first herbals, which is just basically a, a list of um, plants and other names by which they're known. Um, Turner is a Protestant divine and on a couple of occasions has to flee the reign of of henry the and then mary um to the continent because he's he's a he's a deacon and i think he has a wife and he's not supposed to and so he has to get out of the country fast um and he's publishing translations of biblical uh doctrine and things like this and uh those books are including i think a new testament and those books are seen as problematic. So his books, along with the names of like John Wycliffe and stuff, um, his books are banned. And so the herbal is effectively banned by this proclamation, even though it's literally just a list of plants. Um, And this may account for why there's so few copies of this book surviving, because it was one of the books, it was a Turner book, put it into the burn pile, you are not going to have this book around.
1: Um, some of the notes taken in these books were relatively uh, banal. Uh, John Donne corrected the page numbering in his copy of a famous herbal, right? Um, and other, but other note takers took more assertive notes. Um, how did readers interact with the botanical knowledge they were encountering in these books? How did they amplify or challenge the information contained there?
0: Yeah, you know, there's a wide range of um, approaches to books, but I like the I like the anecdote of, uh, about John Dunn a lot because it was his copy of Gerard's Herbal, and there's some page number errors, and he fixed them. <laughs> or um, errors appeared in books all the time. We, as book historians, we know that, um, and sometimes the errors are. Uh, paratextual, their numbers in in counting, their numbers in chapter headings, Um, and they're totally banal. And readers felt absolutely no qualms of picking up their pencil and just inserting the information that corrected um, the book form. But they also did that with content as well. Um, So they often used herbals to Annotate them with their own findings. So smaller format herbals regularly indicate evidence of reading where a reader has noted where a particular plant might be found in their own local landscape you know, down by the creek or, um, you know, behind the church meadow or something like that. Um, You can also see them changing recipes, commenting on them. This was great. This didn't work. Um, It's the sort of thing that my own grandmother would do in her cookbooks. Um, She would annotate to say, you know, you don't need all of this baking soda in this recipe, and she would have it, or, or whatever, or you need more of it, or this tastes better if you put chippets in it. Herbals have, because herbals regularly have um, recipe information or plant virtues listed, you see readers talking back to this information. Um, sometimes they cross things out. So a Protestant. Reader, One of my favorites is a Protestant reader who's coming to a Catholic herbal where you are instructed to, or a reader is instructed to fulfill a recipe and then say a Hail Mary. And the reader has come in and crossed out Mary and put in the word God, right? Pray to, instead of pray to our lady, pray to God. (laughs) Um, So, and that's a particularly, so there's no deference in other words to what the printed book um, says. And I think that this is an important rejoinder because there is a tendency, an understandable tendency, um, but a tendency nonetheless to view um, readers in the past as particularly credulous. Oh my gosh, look at these recipes for remedies that involve putting, I'm very fond of, um, I don't see this in my herbals, but I've seen it in other medical texts. Uh, putting a pigeon, right, attaching a, a live pigeon to the bottom of your feet to cure fever. Um, and the pigeon, you know, medical historians have talked about the, the the pigeon cure. And I, yes, these things existed in books and they were discussed. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the readers themselves who encounter this recipe go, "Oh, I got it. I better go get myself a pigeon." Um, far more often, they're like, "Oh yeah, there's that pigeon remedy again, um, I'm not going to do that or like that shows up all of the time. Um, it's recognized as something that someone once did potentially. It becomes a kind of piece of folklore, even for the person who is encountering it in that moment of the past. And so uh, the marginalia regularly demonstrates that um, English readers, readers of herbals, were, capable of engaging with what Madeline Doran calls various responses to the marvelous. There's different levels of credulity from total acceptance to considering the possibility to total rejection and everywhere kind of in between. And you see evidence for this when you know to look for it. um, When you look for those moments of readerly resistance.
1: Herbal knowledge found its way onto the stage from the comic burlesque of The Night of the Burning Pestle to one of the most compelling scenes for me of medical knowledge in early modern theater um, Helen's curing of a case of fistula in The King and All's well That Ends Well. Um, what kind of presence did herbals have on the early modern stage? What does the staging of this kind of medical and scientific expertise say about these books?
0: So one of the things that I am particularly interested in both as a book historian, but also as a theater artist and director, which is another part of, of my research interest, uh, is in the way that uh, books function as material objects. And when they function as material objects on stage, they're properties, they are artifacts that an actor, like a material thing that an actor has to carry off stage, on stage and do something with. And so when books appear on stage, it's usually because a playwright has put them there for a particular purpose. And one of the things that I explore in one of the chapters of the book is the way that books, particularly books of medicine, um, which could include herbals, functions to signify characters, social or authoritative or intellectual pretensions. And often they do so in ways that are very, very funny. So in the case of Haywood's wise woman of Hoxton, you have an illiterate figure who surrounds herself with books in this sort of quasi Faustian, Dr. Faustus way. But she's doing it specifically to signify to her customer, she's a wise woman, that she is learned. So she looks at books and she turns the pages of books um, to consult on things, but she doesn't actually need any of the information contained in books and she wouldn't use it even if she did. She has this wealth of experiential knowledge um, that she draws from. So she is like one of these readers of Herbals That Leaves Marginalia. She, she uses the book for what she needs it to be. And she doesn't, but she recognizes that other people views the book or views medical books, views printed books as a kind of synecdoche for authority or for, for knowledge. Um, and I think that that's really uh, fascinating because it demonstrates the way that books as material artifacts could be recognized more broadly by the culture for being things, not just for the text that those books contain.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Uh, really interesting things about early modern herbals and the book trade is the way it's situated in multiple disciplines. Um, It's part social history, part book history, part economic history, and literary studies. How how did you navigate that?
0: It was a challenge. Um, I come I was trained as, uh, in in an English department, I was trained as a literary historian, but I was also trained by bibliographers uh, and textual scholars. So um, I had a good background to set up the distinction between works as the products of authors and books as the material products of publishers and, and craftsmen and women. And that latter half lends itself to um, historiographic approaches that um, literary scholarship doesn't ne- always uh, tend to uh, tend to attend to, but my training as a literary historian, um, as someone who has studied uh, the way that authors create personas for themselves within the books that they write, um, both in the sort of quote unquote real authorial self that is part of the paratext, but also as the fictional authorial self, you know, the Colin Clout, Spencer's Colin Clout, those kinds of those kinds of approaches that enabled me to see differently some of the ways that historians who have historians of science, who've studied some of these herbals have approached have approached these texts. So often um, the things that authors claimed in their paratexts about why they wanted a book to be written or they they worked hard to produce a book, what they thought about doing, but then they didn't, those introductory letters to the reader, quite often earlier particular 20th century historical texts, um, historical scholarship viewed the things that authors said as facts unto themselves, as opposed to placing those statements within larger cultural phenomena about the stigma of print uh, or self-deprecation of a particular authorial trope, um, or, or, kind. And so my literary knowledge was able to better contextualize some of those, uh, paratexts and put them into a, in, into conversation with each other into some of the work that literary historians are so good at. At the same time, I was able to write a book uh, that literary historians normally wouldn't touch, a book about non-literary texts, uh, a book about books about plants. So that was a, f- a fun um, but also difficult navigation that, that caused me a fair amount of grief at first until I figured out that I could just lean into and ign- openly acknowledge that this is a, an interdisciplinary book that is trying to link two interdisciplinary fields book history, which sort of operates on the transition between literary history and capital H history, and uh, the history of science, which is operating between science and history. And so um, I was, it was neither fish nor fowl, I suppose, but I really enjoyed navigating that process.
1: This book is based on your dissertation, and and before we started recording, we talked a little bit about the journey from dissertation to book. Um, What were your strategies, tactics for that uh, for that adaptation?
0: Well, the dissertation is for an audience of what, like six people who read it, and enable you to um, to get your button right. You get your PhD. And it's written to demonstrate that you have a knowledge base, but it isn't always uh, written to appeal to a reader or to keep a reader engaged. And it isn't always clear what argument you are making because you're often just trying to demonstrate um, that you are taking part in a conversation um, that has been going on long before you and that you have you are respecting the, the arguments that precede you. Um, and so while you might have an argument, your argument is perhaps not as pointed or as uh, as clear. Um, because re- really, when you're writing a dissertation, you are writing your way into an argument and you only sort of figure out what your dissertation was about as you get to the end of it and you write the introduction, right? That's kind of the way I think it usually works. And so when I had to reconceive this project, uh, as uh, a monograph, I was only starting to get the inkling of the, um, what a colleague of mine calls the the third term, which is what a, a monograph had to have. So I knew that I was working on herbals or plant books, and I knew that I was working on the book trade. Those are my first and second terms. Um, but what I didn't have is the third term. And, and, and what I seemed to to, to figure out is that I was really interested in the way authority could be negotiated from the perspective of different figures. And the word authority appears in the book a number of times, I haven't done a word search, um, but it, 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 it's all over the book. And that third term gave me a mechanism for figuring out with its various chapters how each bit needed to be argued um, in order to assert the claims that I wanted to make or that I felt that my evidence suggested, um, the evidence that I had uncovered. And so um, the, the book is fairly reorganized from what the dissertation was there's I think the dissertation might have been six chapters and the book is something like nine um some chapters got split apart to be expanded um differently but I I had originally begun by thinking about herbals from start to finish I'm going to start with Um, the Little Herbal of 1525. And I'm going to move through to tell the story of John Norton's 1597 Herbal. And that's sort of the way that the project was written as a dissertation. But by the time I got to the John Norton piece, I realized that that's actually the initial part of the story that needs telling. And so if I began there as I as I did with the the prologue as that sort of classic new historic mode of like find an anecdote and sort of surf it um and I both mean like surf like a wave but also surf it as in make yourself sick upon it um find your surf your anecdote. Um that I that gave me a framework for something that I could continuously come back to to help my reader along with with understanding some of the complexity of or the nuances that I was that I was trying to convey within this genre.
1: I, I like that. I like surf your anecdote. That's awesome. Um, I also, the third term, that's a great way of like crystallizing the kind of um, pressure that you need to, to put um, a, a dissertation, um, you, you need to submit a dissertation to. Uh, that's wonderful. Um, one of the distinctive aspects of this book is it's open access, um, meaning that anyone can go to the Cambridge University Press website, regardless of whether you have an institutional affiliation or um, you, you, know, you pay for it or anything, um, and you can download it for free. Uh, why was that an important decision for this project?
0: I've been invested in the open access movement for a long time. Um, I've since about uh, 2011, I have been uh, general textual editor and co- now coordinating editor for the digital Renaissance editions, um, open access projects um, uh, that bring fully edited versions of the plays of Shakespeare's contemporaries available to anyone with an internet connection. Um, I'm also now a, a general textual editor of the new internet Shakespeare editions. Um, and it's the the, the projects run, run on the same platform. Um, and, and this matters in, in Shakespeare scholarship, because a lot of the free Shakespeare texts that are available online are only able to be put online because they're super old. So the most likely text of Shakespeare that you're encountering, if you're Googling and looking for an edition of Twelfth Night or something, is going to come from a 19th century edition, probably the Globe Cambridge. Um, And if it has notes, which it usually doesn't, but if it does, it usually has notes that reflect a 19th century outlook, right? Um, And that's one of the reasons that Shakespeare gets re-edited in every generation, um, because readers change and and herbals um reflect this also new audiences need new ways of looking at old information and so we update and our annotations to accommodate that Um, so but the key thing for me about um open access publishing um is that it it brings my work to a much wider audience than would have access to it if it was locked behind a paywall and I was lucky that I had started a lot of this in motion before COVID-19, which locked down academic publishing even even more. Um, Academic monographs are supremely expensive, and uh, COVID-19 has meant that there's even less money than there was before for academic libraries to to buy them. So what has happened is that the, the book being online has meant that academic libraries can download it and immediately put it in their library servers. Um, and so it's been really gratifying to be able to look and see in WorldCat, um, you know, every couple of months and see more libraries from around the world have copies of my book. Um, and there's libraries are still buying the book in print as well because people do want to read it and read it both ways um and i um what has also been the case which was surprising to me but makes sense is that there's been some difficulties with paper supply for publishers and so copies of the book i think i think it's okay now but i think there was a period of time where they were somewhat restricted because of difficulties with with Obtaining paper for the publisher, um, that was not a problem, of course, for for the e version. Um, and when it came time to publish my book, I was really fortunate that Ohio State, which is where I work, um, has subscribed to a project that is designed to make monographs open access. It's a project called Tome, T-O-M-E, um, that stands for Towards an Open Monograph Ecosystem. And so I was able to apply for a grant that was through tome that was able to pay for the book to come out with Cambridge Gold open access. Uh, and I've been really impressed that um, the open access, Cambridge Gold open access is essentially just a, exactly the same book in a, in a print ready form. Um, online as what I have available in, in, in print. Um, And so it's been really exciting because more people um, have been engaging with my work around the world and it works out really well, given that it's an interdisciplinary sort of book. Some readers are going to be more interested in some chapters of this book than others. Book historians might be particularly interested in the sections where I detail the stationer's company regulations, that might not be as much of interest to a historian of science who really just wants to read what I have to say about John Girard. And so the the fact that it's not just the whole book, but it's individual chapters that can be accessed and downloaded and searched um, has has really come in handy, Um, though it is sort of terrifyingly addictive to look at the stats on the Cambridge website <laughs> that lists um, how many folks have looked at what portions of the book, um, you can go down a real rabbit hole um, of solipsism. I think if you're <laughs> if you uh, if you if you are in that if you're in a certain headspace,
1: yes, yeah. The 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 online world you know provides many um, uh, portals for that kind of uh, the kind of experience. Um, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, I know this book is, uh, fresh off the press, but have you given thought to what your next project might be?
0: I have, um, and I've had some fun this summer thinking, this has been my first summer where I haven't been thinking about a book in a really, really long time. And so I was curious to see where my mind, uh, might, might wander. Um, and It has given me some ideas um, for for my next project, um, which sort of continues my explorations of the ways that the Cognate's authority and authorship are not really synonyms for each other. Um, So if my herbal project was interested in interrogating the ways that authorship came out of a... uh, documentary or economic relationship where re- readers and, and book producers determined what constituted value, um, it, a project that, that tried to link the history of science with book history to show how these interdisciplinary fields could, could benefit each other. Um, my next project has similar goals um, in linking related but disparate fields of uh, performance and editorial theory together. Um, to better account for the surviving evidence about how Shakespeare's authorship of play texts actually functioned in both literary and performance spheres. So what this effectively means um, is that I'm, I'm interested um, in drawing from my work as a Shakespeare editor um, and director, um, where I've, I've spent the past decade um, studying and performing some of Shakespeare's bad quarto texts, which are the the, the most debated texts um, in the canon. Um, so, the first publications of plays like Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet and Henry V. Um, I, I have directed or produced these um, with my with my theater company um, here at Ohio State, um, and. Um, Essentially, for those who are unfamiliar, the debate about the bad quartos um, centers around the ways that these earlier printed versions of the plays are shorter than the longer, more familiar versions that appear in the first folio. And literary critics um, over the centuries have come up with all kinds of rationales for dismissing them as wrong or um, defective. Um, because of vagaries of textual transmission and so on. Um, and what I have come to realize in thinking about authority um, and authorship in writing this book is that um, that perhaps one of the motivations for this kind of dismissal of the bad quartos has to do with the way that we tend to want to think about Shakespeare as a playwright. Um, as the introduction to the first folio, as the Hemings and Condel, his friends, write in the in their letter um, in the first folio, they suggest that Shakespeare wrote without blotting a line. He had all of his ideas sort of fully formed and they emerge sui generis from his from his brilliant bald head. Um, so the bad quartos have this evidence that suggests, like, actually, no, he's a kind, he's a writer who works at it. He's a writer who was industrious, who changed his mind about what he wrote as different opportunities and circumstances demanded of him. That's a different kind of person. That's a different kind of genius right we may not be so comfortable in calling Shakespeare a genius if he's just a guy who works really hard or who changes his mind so my second book project which is still sort of swirling around in my not bald brain um is going to draw both from my knowledge of textuality and my experience as a theater maker um to bring some of the to bring some some kind of analytic performance practice to bear on textual and book historical questions so it's a very similar methodology to what i did before but a very different topic of investigation
1: that's wonderful we'll we'll keep our eyes out for those um, projects uh thank you for coming on the show sarah
0: yeah thank you for having me